Okay, so it, I believe some of you guys are in Greek. It pissed you. It was originally written in Greek. Um, about 400, the church shifted over to the Latin and the Latin Bible. And that's where I think things got turned really messy. And then in the Reformation, they went back to the Greek and tried to figure out where the church got so far off track. We're going to be studying that in our seminar on Saturday. But anyway, I'm really interested in the Greek and, and what, uh, what the Greek Bible, the New Testament has to say, and what this original creed if I'm going to study it, I want to know what the Greek words are, because Latin is one language removed. And then English is, you know, really not many languages removed. It's, it's another language removed, but it's good to go back to the original. But pistuo, because a creed is just, a credo is, is uh, I believe, in Latin. So first of all, we looked at in God, the Father Almighty. Now the red is what they then later embellished the creed with, the Apostles' Creed. So a lot of you are familiar with that. You grew up in Catholic Church, Episcopalian Church, Lutheran Church. That came later. Some of these embellishments came centuries after the fact. And then the entire Apostles' Creed, as we say it, wasn't completed for a while. But this, the black letters here, were probably around in the first century. And they reflect just the basic New Testament teachings that the Apostles were building all of their doctrine and teaching off of. So... We looked at, I believe, at God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. We looked at that one. The next phrase talks about the historicity of who Jesus was. I don't want to take a lot of time reviewing because the next statement is so, the, the, the statement that I want to look at is so amazing. But uh, we did look at the fact that um, Jesus who was, you know, obviously the, the central figure of Christianity. His last name is in Christ. That wasn't his last name. That was his title. And that was a prophesied, incredibly uh, important, consulted office and a, a figure that the, the Old Testament prophets, um, and again, you should memorize them. You should know them in order. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Joel, Amos, etc. They were all pointing to this coming figure. And even prior to that, Moses, Abraham, David, the great figures like that were pointed to this coming figure. Uh, we weren't exactly clear on the fact that it was going to be God with skin on, but God kind of pulled a fast one on us and said, yeah, this person's coming and he's going to save the day and he's going to save humanity. Um, and by the way, it's me with skin on breaking into human history. And uh, then we looked at the fact that that word Lord, kurios, that was a direct statement saying that, yes, indeed, the first Christians believed that Jesus Christ was God. Um, kurios, the, anyway, it was how you would, uh, in the Greek, refer back to Yahweh, God's personal name in the Old Testament. We looked at all that last week. The next statement in the creed says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and, added in red, born of, the Virgin Mary, which just means that it is, it is proper Christian belief that this individual, Jesus, the Christ, who was a true human being, was literally, actually, uh, he lived in time-space history. Today, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who say, well, that's not really necessary to believe anymore. Well, then you're no longer uh, standing in the apostolic tradition, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. All Christians before about 200 years ago would, would all say that, yes, indeed, this was a literal flesh and blood man, uh, you know, that when you cut him, he bled, he slept, he dreamed, he ate, he was in every way a human being, but he was also God. So we talked about that as well, the hypostatic union, two natures and one person. But this is just traditional Christian belief. That's who Jesus was. 
So it goes over some of the historical facts. His mother who birthed him, her name was Mary, but it was a supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit. And then he suffered under a figure named Pontius Pilate. And we looked, there's actually archaeological evidence confirming that this guy indeed was where he was when the Bible says he was there. And there are historians that say, yes, indeed, Jesus Christ, Josephus, a Jewish historian, Tacitus, a Roman historian said, yes, indeed, this figure, Jesus Christ suffered under this guy. And he died. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. <coughs> the phrase that I want to look at today is the next one, which says, there you go, special effects. On the third day, he rose again. Um, you can't really say, it, it, it is, it, I guess it is the crowning, crowning moment of all of human history is this, on the third day, he rose from uh, rose from the dead. He rose again. You say, well, what about his death? Well, it wouldn't have done us a whole lot of good had he not risen from the dead and confirmed everything that he said and conquered death and hell and sin. And his resurrection actually proves that what he came to do, he indeed took care of. And I want to talk about the resurrection. Of course, pretty much every week we go over the gospel. And the gospel is one you're a sinner, which means you violated God's righteous standard. Everybody knows it. Even if they claim to be an atheist, what's your conscience? It's a sense that you've done something wrong. You've upset the cosmic order of things. Where does that come from? It's because you're made in God's image. That's in your operating system. You violated God. You're going to stand before him. He's going to judge you. That's what your conscience is. Um, so we all know that we've sinned. And because we've sinned, we're worthy of death. And it could end there. God could just say, well, you all sinned, so you're all cut off from me for all eternity. But instead, the scripture says that God loved us. And that is one of the primary reasons. We perhaps we could say the primary reason, but not the only reason that Jesus came in the flesh, but it was to die in our place. This is the gospel. You've sinned. You deserve death. God came in the flesh. He died in your place. Uh, on the cross, and, and that's what you need to be, need to believe if you want to be forgiven and in right standing with God. But you also need to call him Lord, which means you need to get off the throne of your own heart and let the Lord of the universe back where he belongs in your life. So if you confess Jesus as Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which means you believe that his death was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin, you can be saved. Hitler could be saved. Jeffrey Dahmer could be saved. Ted Bundy could be saved. Help me here. Vlad the Impaler could be saved. Anyone on earth could be saved because the blood of Christ takes care of all human sin for all time. How does it work? I don't know. It just does. It was an infinite sacrifice. It was God. I, I think that has to do with the equation. You know, like if I were a perfect man, I, I could, you know, die for Tim. You know, then I'd be out of luck. So then I'd have to go to hell. But, but if it was God in the flesh and an infinite sacrifice, I think that has something to do with it. But it says that he, uh, he's, he paid the penalty for our sins, those of, us who, those of us who have received him, but not only ours, also those of the whole world. If you accept this gift, you don't have to go through a whole rigmarole of rituals and ditties, and you, you don't have to tip the scales. You're just done. You're just in. If you accept the fact that Jesus paid your bill, 
So if you're a college kid and uh, you know you have four years of school and it's going to cost you $100,000, now don't count on this, but say I was really rich and I said, it's done. It is paid. You said, yeah, but I'm only in one, year one. Doesn't matter. It's paid. Just keep pushing on. Yeah, but uh, what about year three? Maybe I should come over and clean your house. No, dude, it's clean. It's, 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 no, my house isn't clean, but your bill is paid. You don't have to worry about it. It's done. So the same with us. When we accept Christ's gift of salvation, what he did on the cross, it's just done. And most false pseudo-Christian religions and pseudo-Christian cults just can't get that through their thick skulls that it is done. And they're like, it's not really done. It's kind of done. And then you got to do a lot of stuff. No, it's done, done, done. That's what the scripture says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, when you're born again, truly born again, he puts his spirit in you. And you now then say, well, if it's done, then you mean you could just go out and do whatever you want and it's paid for? Technically, yes. But the Bible says, kind of, are you mental? Do you not understand that not only... Not only were you forgiven, but you were given a new heart that likes to be compassionate and enjoys being kind and really doesn't like sinning anymore. So those of you who are born again, yeah, there's a little buzz you can get out of sin, but over the long term, do you really enjoy it? No, you're like a fish that has been pulled out of the water and thrown up on the shore and you're like flopping around. You're like, oh, get me back in the water. I enjoy being righteous. So when you're truly born again, you're truly saved. Why are you righteous? Because you're righteous. Why do you do good? Because God gives you a good heart. And it becomes natural for you to be compassionate and kind and courageous and obedient to God and tell the truth and all those things. It makes you feel good. You're like a fish swimming around the water. Sorry, that's all that line. That's what his death is all about. But the fact is, he didn't remain in the ground. He rose from the dead. Um, and that's the line of the creed that I want to look at. I want to look at the Just think about the resurrection. Is it really vital? I have a book at home. I don't know if it's put out by Oxford or Cambridge or what, but it is, it is a book about Christianity. It's written by a modern person who's in their worldview. They're modern, which means they basically think science is... <laughs> everything. And so well, we know people don't really raise from the dead anymore. So we've had to modify Christianity. Da, 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 da. This is, this is in this book. And so an unbeliever gets this book. Oh, I guess a lot of Christians don't believe in the resurrection. No, that, that is the person who ever wrote that book is not a Christian in the historical sense, the biblical sense. That's a false kind of a Christianity. Uh, real Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So classic text. We're all here to, to learn. Uh, deeply know the Bible. That's why you guys are here. If you wanted to dabble, you wouldn't be here. Uh, you guys come, you study for two hours on Saturday. A lot of you guys get up, spend one, two hours a day in the word of God and in prayer. You're here. You want to be pushed. Uh, some of you guys are going on for advanced study. we got a Greek club. Some of you guys are getting master's degrees in theology. Some of you are thinking about going into full-time ministry. You're here because you want to be pushed. Um, so I forgot why I said that, but it's a good point. Oh, no, now I know why I said it. What is the resurrection chapter in the New Testament? Huh? Mumble, mumble, mumble. Say it. One, two, three. First Corinthians 15. Good. First Corinthians 15. 
It's all about the resurrection. And it basically says without the resurrection, we don't have Christianity. Without resurrection, you guys are pathetic. I'm pathetic. This whole, this whole thing is pathetic. Our whole claim, what we claim to be as Christians, it falls apart. There's no use even doing it without a real, actual, physical resurrection. And so that's what the Apostle Paul says here. First few verses, he makes clear what the gospel is. I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. You got to keep on believing it, unless you believed in vain. Uh, Faith isn't something you did 20 years ago. Faith is something you did 20 years ago and you do today. You're You're continuing to look to Jesus as your sin bearer as the one who died for your sins, rose again from the, from the dead. Paul said, keep holding on to that. He said, I handed down to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, what he's talking about is all the Old Testament prophetic texts, like my favorite, Isaiah 53, which you ought to know. Uh, or Psalm 22. There's a whole bunch of Psalms. Or Psalm, yeah, Psalm 110, or 2 Samuel 7, or there's a whole bunch of texts that are talking about this Messiah who's going to come, who's going to rule, he's going to reign, but he's going to die, he's going to suffer, and then he's going to be glorified. And Peter said, even the guys that wrote it didn't quite know what God was up to. The prophets who prophesied made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit within them was indicating. What is going on here? This Christ figure, he's going to die, he's going to rule, he's going to suffer, he's going to reign. What in the world's happening? So Paul says the gospel has now clarified what God was up to. This Christ figure is going to suffer, die, raise from the dead. Why? Understand that he did it, embrace it, apply it to your life, and you're in. He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now he gives some proofs. He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. That's Aramaic for Rocky was his name. Peter means rock. So basically it's Rocky. Rocky was a, the first leader of the apostles. Um, then to the 12. So he appeared literally, actually, physically. After that, he appeared to more than 500. This, this would be really hard to fake. Basically drop someone in a wheat thresher, put them in the ground, and then, you know, in a matter of days, have them come start walking around. Just shake it off. It really didn't hurt. You know, whip him to bloody ribbons, pierce him in the side, nail his hands and feet, not even <coughs> limp. It was, it, was, it was a supernatural event where God conquered death, hell, the grave, sin. And then Jesus appeared to his followers and said, guys, I won. It's over. I won. Salvation has been purchased for everybody. And he appeared, first of all, to the 12. And then he appeared to 500 other people, walked around with them, taught them stuff. And he said, okay, you guys got this down? You understand what the gospel is? You understand why I rose from the dead? Okay, I'm going back where I came from. Now it's up to you. I'm going to go back to heaven. Then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now you got to take this mission and you got to tell people about the death, burial, and resurrection so that you can bring salvation to the end of the earth. And this pitiful band of the courage of a bunch of little schoolgirls suddenly becomes this indomitable force willing to to shed their blood uh, for this claim. Why? Because they really 
saw the resurrected Christ. So then he appeared to James. This is kind of funny because who is James? That was Jesus's. After Mary had Jesus, I know a lot of Christian traditions like to embellish the Christian faith and add all kinds of stuff to it. But Mary and Joseph had a normal marriage and did what normal married people do after Jesus had, uh, after Mary had Jesus. Because it's not sinful. God thought it up because it's a good thing. They had sexual relations and she had other kids like James. But if your brother was Jesus, you might not believe he was the Messiah, the creator of the universe. You know, James, I just wish you could be more like your brother, Jesus. You know, you probably hated your brother. You know, you just want to beat him up, you know, his whole childhood. But then when he rose from the dead, he said, yeah, bro, guess what? I am. I am. It was me. I am. And so then he became a leader in the church. And he was especially, particularly the leader in Jerusalem. But he appeared to his own brother. Uh, so he appeared to 500. He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, because there there's a bunch of other people in the New Testament that are called apostles besides the founding 12. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is the apostle Paul who was a professional Christian hunter. And then Jesus is like, would you knock it off, please? Because <laughs> he, was, he was trying to, to stuff the message of Christ and to quench it and put out that fire. And Jesus showed up and basically knocked him off his horse, knocked, you know, struck him blind. He said, no, you're actually going to be the tip of the spear now. You're, I'm going to use you to bring this message to the ends of the earth. So Paul said, actually, he appeared to all these people, then he, eventually he appeared to me. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. So and now I want to show you a couple other things he said about the resurrection. If Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This is going on in the church right now. There are churches in Manhattan, Kansas. The pastor does not believe this actually happened. It's just, this is not, this is no, I didn't get secret message or anything. Just go look at the historical documents of some of these denominations you don't need to believe in the literal resurrection if you want to be Episcopalian or, or uh, Anglican or um, some types of Baptists, some types of Presbyterians. Now, usually there's a, there's a straight shooting type and there's a heretical type. But just because it says Baptist or Presbyterian or Lutheran doesn't mean they believe in the resurrection anymore. But they're having this problem all the way back in the first century. People are saying they're Christians, but they're like, not really, not really a resurrection. Maybe a spiritual resurrection. Maybe, maybe just the inspirational idea of the courage and compassion of Jesus filling our hearts and making us go out and be the same kind of person. Paul's like, nonsense. We're talking about a physics and science-defying miracle. A, a corpse that should be decomposing in the ground. Everything being reversed and transformed. It's God basically reversing the curse that was put on creation in the garden. He says, how are some of you saying that there's no resurrection from the dead? If there's no resurrection, 
then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and us apostles, we're full of it. We're a bunch of liars. We're false witnesses because we're saying that God raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If, in fact, the dead are not raised, if the dead are not raised, even Christ is not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Because the resurrection was the proof that the sacrifice was good. Jesus said, I'm laying my life down by my own choice. I'm taking it up by my own choice. And he did. He, he tricked the devil. He just tricked him. The Bible said that the devil didn't understand what was going on. And, and he thought, hey, if you get a chance to kill the son of God, let's do it. But he didn't realize he was actually helping God. Because in putting the second person in Trinity to death, the devil actually helped God by uh, taking care of the sacrifice that would cancel out sin for all humanity for all time. God outwitted the devil. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, if the rulers of this world had understood God's wisdom, they never would have crucified the Lord. They never would have done it. Hey, Satan, how about you put to death Jesus so that all humanity could be forgiven and your, your treasury would be pillaged, called the harrowing of hell. Hell could be potentially emptied if you'll just help me out. Well, God had to, you know, let Satan be Satan and follow his motives, but basically by putting Christ to death, by demonizing a bunch of crazy Roman soldiers and, and uh, Jewish, Jewish religious fanatics, they serve God's purpose. Christ was put to death. Uh, and then our sin, you know, our, our sin problem was taken care of, but then he rose from the dead. He's like, all right, I'm done. After Hebrews says, after he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to send the spirit. Now, go tell people this message. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we've hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, these people at this time, they're being put to death for this message. The first martyr, Stephen, if, you have, if you've never thought about this, high probability that young man, I don't know, how old was he in his 30s? He was married. Probably had kids. If he's put to death for this message, what an idiot. It's not true. But if it is true, there's something to think about. If Christ has been raised from the dead, nothing else really matters. But if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, nothing else really matters. I mean, we're sunk. We're in our sin. But if he has raised from the dead, that changes everything. So I was thinking about a sermon on resurrection. Some different approaches I could take. Some different approaches pastors normally take. And uh, we could talk about the philosophy of the resurrection. And that would, that would approach the question of, can it happen? Do resurrections happen? Can they happen? Hypothetically, theoretically, what we know of the universe, can they happen? And uh, we were talking about, we're just coming out of the modern era, the enlightenment era, where we basically thought science was the end-all, be-all, 
that if you can test it in a lab, that proves that it's true with a capital T and everything else is soft and squishy knowledge. And so religion and faith and all that took a backseat. And some of you guys will go to your college classes. And if your professor has a you know, PhD in some sort of science or if he's a philosophical you know, uh, PhD, whatever, you kind of scoff at religious certainty and that kind of thing. But if they're truly modern in their outlook, you know, yes, science is real. Science is true. But uh, we're leaving the modern era and we're going into the postmodern era, which basically tells the people that were relying on their senses, you guys pulled a fast one on everybody. You acted like, and, and a lot of you guys, again, I say this a lot, but a lot of you drank the Kool-Aid and you do think that if you can prove in a lab, that means it's true. But actually... Scientists have to step out in thin air to make to even begin their experiments. They have to have all these presuppositions that they're and now. And I'll say this, and you'll be yeah, but what's wrong with that? You have to study a little more philosophy to believe that you are an individual who's in an objective reality that can be tested, and that all of your apparatus work properly. It, there's, there's so many presuppositions that a scientist makes when he goes into the lab that what philosophers are doing, they're crying foul on them. And they're saying, you had no right to act like you were standing on solid rock when you were doing your science, because you're not. You're standing on thin air. And they're like, well, it works really well. So that means it's true. No, that just means it works really well. It doesn't mean you ever proved that it was true. But doesn't it works really well mean that it's true? No, it just means it works really well. So that if you go to Africa and you meet a witch doctor and he does voodoo and it works really well, and it's, it's total opposite of what the scientist is doing, then you'd have to say on that basis that what he's doing is just as true as what science is. I know this is kind of blowing your mind, but uh, we're living in this era, we're coming out of this modern era where, the, where Christians said, well, we can't test resurrections in a lab. We can't validate them. We can't, do, you know, and they, it can't be repeated. So they don't happen. And it's just because we're worshiping this scientific kind of perspective that we're coming out of an era where they say resurrections don't happen. But uh, that's been that, that whole perspective in this postmodern world that we're entering into has been blown up. So there's some Christians that latched onto it, call them liberal or progressive, and the pastor won't believe in a resurrection. And then there's kind of an offshoot of it. It's called neo-orthodoxy. And they say, well, it doesn't really matter if it really happened because it's the myth. That's important. Well, still, that didn't really happen. But do miracles, can miracles happen in the real world? If you go back before the modern era to the pre-modern era, everybody believed in miracles. You can't test them because they're miracles. They defy the normal testable laws and principles of the physical realm. But before the modern era, before everybody started worshiping science, like it really was, could do more than it really could do, Christians didn't have any problem with miracles. If you can say the creed, and you're not a scientist stepping out into thin air, but instead you're a person of faith stepping out onto, I believe in God, that's our first, that's our foundation as Christians. That's what the first statement of the creed. I believe in God. If you start with God, the belief in God, you can build a very 
logical, workable system. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the philosophy, even though you're like, you just did. Um, <laughs> if you believe, if you can say, I believe in God, you shouldn't be any, have any problem at all with that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if there is a God who created everything and he has all power, sure, he can set things up and they normally work this way, but he's God. So he spoke the universe into being. He holds it together by the word of his power. If on occasion he wants to do something to defy our normal principles and laws, he has every right to do so. And virtually every human being on earth up until the enlightenment believed that those sort of things happen. And to this day, most, most Christians, even in a modern, most people, in, even in this modern world, believe that miracles happen. And there are things outside of this realm. So all I want to say about this is, if you can say the first line of the creed, which is, oops, let's get there. Boom, I believe in God. This should not be a problem for you. Uh, now, we could do a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to. The next one would be the apologetics of the resurrection. You say, okay, I believe it can happen, but did it happen? And uh, there's been some super smart guys. Uh, this is the approach that most Christians take today. I'm going to prove to a modern who believes that, you know, uh, uh, or, or uh, I guess it wouldn't be a modern. I don't know what it would be. I'm going to prove to somebody who believes that a resurrection could take place that actually Jesus's did take place. And then they'll look at history and they'll look at probabilities and they'll look at even legal, what lawyers like to do this kind of stuff. But uh, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. If you want to see a really great movie of a guy going through this struggle, go watch uh, Lee Strobel, Case for Christ. It was, it's great. Or Josh McDowell, same kind of guy, kind of legal mind, evidence that demands a verdict and the resurrection factor. And there's a lot of people that have gone down this road. And that would be apologetics. And you look at history. Did he really exist? Everybody knows Jesus existed. Um, what Did he really die? Well, all the evidence is that he died. Was he really raised from the dead? Well, a lot of people that weren't even Christians, when they look at the evidence, they say, well, I got over the can it happen? I think it could happen, but did it happen? When they look at the evidence, say, yes, it happened. But that's not really where my interest lies. I'm interested in the real life proof of the resurrection. So, yeah, scripture in Acts 17 says the resurrection is the proof to all people of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And if you're willing to look at the evidence, it's there. And God furnished proof for all people uh, that Christ is the way, he is the answer, et cetera, et cetera. And if you look at the facts and you don't just la, 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 I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to look, um, the best evidence is that he indeed raised from the dead. But uh, not what I really want to look at is the real life proof for the resurrection.